Hello and welcome to the Antifada. We have a full crew here again today. I, of course, am Sean KB, here with Andy, Jamie, Yo, and we are proud to welcome back third time, three time returning champion, Pavlos Rufos. What's up, Pavlos? Hi guys, nice to be back. It's great to have you back. Uh, You've been on the show before to discuss your personal experience with uh, an involvement uh, in the mass movements that arose out of the Greek debt crisis. You've also talked with us about the rise of Syriza and, of course, the aftermath of the Greek working class's uh, historical defeat in the last decade. Don't forget the riot porn. (laughs) <laughs> and the riot porn. Excellent, excellent bonus content out there. The audio riot porn episode for new subscribers. <laughs> you should definitely go and check that out. Good times. Uh, today, Pablos is back uh, to discuss uh, the capitalist state's contradictory pandemic policy and the equally contradictory response on the part of much of the anti-capitalist milieu in Europe. The United States, of course, has seen the most fatalities from SARS-CoV-19 in the world. At the time of recording, estimated about 850,000 people. And the nature of the virus in our state response, uh, these questions have been about as contentious as anything over the last year or so. So, uh, you know, not just in society at large, but within the broader left. So we thought it would be great to bring Pavlos back uh, and talk about this issue. So we've brought Pavlos here because uh, not only is he a great friend and a great analyst of uh, capitalist society and its contradictions, but also because he was a participant in a uh, collectively written article that is uh, making the rounds right now, shall we say, in the Greek uh, anti-capitalist milieu and also now translated into many other languages. So Pavlos, central to uh, this article are the various social conditions, social contradictions that uh, the COVID crisis has brought forward. So do you want to tell us a little bit about how uh, this social emergency has kind of, um, you know, brought forward a lot of economic, political, social, so on, uh, contradictions in uh, class society. Even heightened the contradictions, as we might say. Indeed. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, well, it's a kind of complicated issue, but if, if you allow me, I'm going to start a little bit before. I'm going to start by saying what prompted us to get together and write this article. Um, yeah, please. Which is um, the kind of, you know, we've we've all been through like um, a, a quite tremendous experience during the whole COVID pandemic, like more than two years down the line. Um, the whole world has kind of simultaneously uh, experienced this unprecedented crisis, and um, and 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 although. Of course, there's a lot of confusion and there's a lot of uh, uncertainty and there is still a lot of anxiety about what is happening. Um, we felt that the, the kind of underlying circumstances that, first of all, maybe led to the crisis and then the, the, the reasons why the crisis was managed in one way or another, depending on which part of the world you were and all that, were not that difficult to, to understand. Um, what puzzled us um, quite a lot, especially in the Greek context, um, was the fact that um, uh, a lot of people, a lot of comrades, a lot of people within the anarchist, anti-authoritarian scene, within the left-wing scene, um, seemed to um, respond in a completely, completely different, um, using a completely different framework in order to understand what was happening um, and how to react to it. And it just became like absolutely almost impossible to understand what it was that was like, um, you know, defining that framework. 
where were they getting all these kind of um, ideas from? So we started by saying, okay, we will try and understand why it is that people have um, so greatly, it seems, uh, misunderstood um, what is happening. So that led us back to the idea of what, what actually has happened, um, what has been the situation in the last two and a half years, um, what kind of like uh, divergent um, COVID management responses have we seen from state, capital, different parts of capital, um, etc. And um, what kind of crisis, like at which level all this crisis, at, uh, you know, economic crisis, social crisis, political crisis, um, even existential, you know, crisis. There's a, there's a deep psychological um, kind of like dimension to all this. Um, how do all these things uh, make sense? How can we explain them? What, what is the, you know, what, what is a better framework for understanding what has happened? And how... Is it possible that uh, people within the left and the radical left and whatever um, could get this so wrong, let's say, schematically speaking? Um, what are the reasons? What kind of subjects are we talking about who understand this situation so wrong? So um, that was that was the, the, the initial kind of like trigger, let's say, for, for deciding to write this. Plus the fact that the, 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 the conflict and the polarization that has come out of um, this kind of situation, the, the 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 animosity between the different sides, let's say, of 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 understanding COVID and, and responding to the management and and analyzing the consequences and taking a look at the, the reactions and the movements and whatever, um, has been so tremendous, right? Um, that it's 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 you know. Friendships have been broken up. Um, collective housing has been, you know, people have moved out. Um, couples have, like, separated. It has become, like, really, really intense. And in a way, it is reminiscent of, like, uh, for us at least, it was reminiscent of the, of, the, of the crisis of 2010, where a lot of tension was brought out on the surface and a lot of polarization. But that was more at a social level. And, and in this time around, and this is the aspect of the more existential um, thing that we're talking about, it has become like much more kind of ingrained in people's everyday lives, right? It has become, because it is an issue which is not just concerning like a state imposing a kind of sense of, you know, um, a set of like austerity measures and depriving people of, of their livelihoods or proletarianizing people. Um, it has become an issue that affects all these all these issues at the same time. Plus, it is something that is existentially kind of like um, threatening. It concerns our bodies. It concerns our understanding of health, our understanding of illness, our understanding of like healthcare. Um, it's very, very deeply kind of like it's almost a molecular kind of like level. Um, and everyone is involved. Like nobody can avoid this, right? This is not a, a kind of crisis where anyone can say, I'm just going to kind of like ignore it and do something else, right? Nobody has right. been unaffected by this crisis in, in, in the whole world in a certain way. Yeah. Well, I, I got to say, um, I think this kind of denialism is might be more prevalent on the European left than the US left. And I wanted to mm -hmm, mm -hmm. get your take on why that might be. I think the US left or, you know, people who are at least nominally on the left most of the backlash that I've seen has been from people who were not really serious leftist thinkers in the first place who are mostly doing some kind of contrarian backlash to, you know, the liberal concern about COVID. But it seems like something a little bit different is going on in and Europe. And also, well, if I, I could, could also yeah. think we got to just 
define what denialism means the way the way it's used yeah, in this piece yeah. because these aren't people who say that COVID isn't real or that the vaccine doesn't work necessarily. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think Andy's right. Let, let, let's start there because that, that's a good like framework um, for, for, for setting up the whole discussion because um, it, it has been occasionally misunderstood or misread and, and a lot of people who have like um, disliked or criticized our text have uh, seemed to, um, to, to be a bit confused, although we try to make it as clear as possible. When we speak about denialism, um, we mean not necessarily the denial of the pandemic itself. It's not people who deny that there is a pandemic or that there is a virus, although these nut cases also exist. But I think as time goes by, um, you know, people, um, that that side of denialism has kind of like vastly kind of receded. It's not there at present. What we mean with denialism is more prevalent at the moment. The kind of denialism we're talking about is the denial of the seriousness of the threat caused by COVID, um, a denial of its actual kind of like um, um, consequences, who it affects, you know, which categories are more vulnerable, what does vulnerability mean, um, and, and these kind of issues. So it's not, it's not people who, um, yeah, as I said, it's not people who deny that there is a pandemic, but more often than not, you will, you will hear a but at the end. So there is a pandemic, but it only affects like really old people or it only affects really old who had like um, kind of comorbidities or it only affects those who are, you know, gradually the list gets bigger and bigger. Right. And eventually, I think if anyone has, is really taking paying attention to what is happening, will understand that that kind of vague category of vulnerability is quite huge. Right. And it affects, um, it's, not, it's not statistically significant in any way whatsoever. And um, as, as Gilles Dove put it in, in one of his texts, in a sense, if you look at the categories of people who are immediately affected and threatened by COVID, um, what you see is a kind of like um, a kind of snapshot of the proletarian condition in many Western countries, um, which is like the, the mostly... Of course, globally, but um, the focus of, 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 of our discussion of denialism is, is more or less um, reduced to, to Western um, capitalist countries. So, um, so the category of vulnerability, in a sense, implies you know, the, 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 um, the proletarian condition. People who have bad uh, access to um, healthcare, people who have reduced uh, access to healthier food, people who live with a lot of stress, with... Um, very difficult working conditions, um, you know, a whole range of like, um, you know, descriptions of social reality that affect millions and millions of people and, and, and it cannot be reduced to some kind of imaginary, you know, abstract subject of like really old with comorbidities, blah, blah, blah. And of course, let me just note here just in passing that even if it was the case, which is not, right, it is not true that COVID only affects a very small um number of people but even if it was the case that it did it would still not justify the kind of denialism that we have seen um even if it was the case that it was only like um really old people that were affected there is still no justification for allowing that um to 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 cloud our thinking in terms of what we need to do and and how we need to collectively take care of each other right because um, 
you see this in the United States and elsewhere. I think there's this um, duality. There's this the polarity between we have to listen to science and accept every single policy that the state has given, even though they've horribly mismanaged everything. On the one hand, uh, versus like this, it's all completely it's it's all overblown. It's just a flu. Yep. None of these policies are even worth proposing. And what that does is it lets the state and the capitalist state's horrible mismanagement of this global social crisis off the hook at that point mm-hmm. yeah i mean in many ways and this is this is something that we we explore um as much as we could in the text um that this this dilemma between uh, let's say this the supposed conflict between um those who support like state management of the crisis and those who question it right the denialist in a sense um we consider that to be a false dilemma because right. neither the state is is should be of course off the hook the, the management has been absolutely terrible absolutely terrible in more in more cases than one it's not it's not just like of course there are there are differences and 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 things have changed and you can periodize a little bit the the, the kind of the different responses that you've had but in overall um the management and the 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 way that um kind of the framework within which this management has taken place has been appalling and it is appalling in the sense both that um, the underlying reasons behind the choice of management that happened have to do with inherent contradictions within capitalism and within its political form in the state, right? This is the main reason why we see those contradictions. But it's also appalling because it is, um, you know, in a way it's reflective of, of capitalist society as a whole in general, like historically, not just to do with COVID, right? So we know for sure that, um, you know, it, the questions of like socially excluded, vulnerable populations, you know, disabilities, um, those with uh, with chronic like health problems are already structurally uh, kind of excluded, right? Especially in places like the United States, but even in the kind of more advanced welfare um, healthcare systems in Europe, there is this kind of structural exclusion and, and their suffering and their uh, injuries and their impairment and their uh, their livelihoods is basically constantly being depoliticized, right, by capitalist kind of management. It's become something that is just a statistic. It is expected. It's going to happen. And we just have to accept it as a fact. And this is the reality that existed long before COVID. What we see right. with COVID is the, the exact same model being introduced in order to justify, you know, um, deaths from COVID, um, hospitalizations, long COVID um, you know, situations, um, this kind of like wide kind of categories of things that are, that, are, that have become COVID and they become politicized. And, and from our perspective, it is absolutely um, shocking and, and appalling to hear people who belong to a kind of like progressive, radical, emancipatory um, left to take part in this depoliticization of this suffering, of this, um, of the ill, of the disabled or whatever, by by proclaiming that, um, you know, since COVID only affects these specific categories of, of, of group, you know, uh, categories of people, then this, there is no actual reason to take all these, um, you know, measures and, and, and have this protection. Let me clarify something before I go on, because this has been um, brought to, um, to the foreground quite a lot. There is nothing in our text that actually supports the lockdown. So when I speak about measures that we need to maintain, I'm talking about measures that are 
um, absolutely necessary for our self-protection, right? As 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 a class, as you know, as as radicals in in, in whatever sense you want to put it. Um, we're not talking about the contradictory measures of lockdowns or of shutting down. Um, I don't know. Um, cafes, but having workplaces, the rest of the workplaces right. functioning normally. Um, we're not talking about having like public means of transport, like functioning regularly without any kind of protective measures, but, you know, not allowing people to go out of their house to, to walk their dog or something like that. This is just completely insane. And there's a, there's a whole list of contradictory measures that exist in that realm. What we are talking about is more some very basic understanding of what it means to have an airborne virus and what it means to protect yourself against an airborne virus, which is highly contagious. And that means a whole number of issues that would have existed, whether we're talking about the contemporary capitalist situation and organizational society, or whether they would have, um, it would have occurred, like a pandemic like that would have occurred in a different context, whether we're talking about, I don't know, the Middle Ages or a communist society of the future. Right. We would still need to have certain measures like masks, maintain some kind of social distancing, you know, understand the fact that um, crowded indoor spaces are highly contagious, etc., etc. you know, work through ventilation and, and proper ventilation, stuff like that. These are, these uh, are not, to men not to mention have a um, healthcare system that uh, is, has uh, a lot of social resources, resources in it, have things like ventilators, have things like therapeutics that are available to everybody, have healthcare workers who are, you know, given mm -hmm. the resources they need in order to, like, there's been two years for the ruling class to put that together. And we're mm -hmm. still using the just in time hospital bed exactly. system that we were using before this happened. Exactly. But, yeah. but questions, yeah, like paying people to stay home. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. uh, even in a communist society, I imagine we would plan for it a little better so that uh, production could be totally shut down for two months mm -hmm. if we needed to. We wouldn't have this uh, this this weird contradictory thing where you still have to go to work if you're an essential worker, but mm -hmm. you're not allowed to do anything fun afterwards or see your family. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and people could still, you know, have food to eat. And that's not even hypothetical. You know, we've seen places like New Zealand and China, two vastly different countries. Both of them uh, respond to this crisis in a way that saved millions of lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, it is. It, it has been a constant thing from the beginning to say that um, this this pandemic lands on a on a landscape in which healthcare has been massively undermined more or less depending on which country you look at i mean i'm, I'm not even going to talk about the health that's that's healthcare in the us um, but uh, even in europe and for example in greece like we know for sure we've talked about it before in in different episode um there's been like 10 to 12 years of austerity still continuing to a certain extent there's been massive cuts in healthcare budgets um already in the first two years of austerity after 2010 you had like more than 25% reduction in the healthcare budget there's a lot of hospitals that have closed down there's a lot of um, um, healthcare workers that have retired, have early retirement in order to, you know, avoid the kind of cuts that they're experiencing, et cetera, et cetera. So this, this, this kind of pandemic comes and lands in an already decimated kind of healthcare situation all around, um, or at least, you know, in some countries where the situation is not as bad as Greece, so let's say, for example, in Germany, you still have a kind of massive wave of privatization of changing the forms of like the way healthcare works, making sure that you have like a kind of like 
first instant um, kind of like treatment in order to avoid sending people to like hospitals. And and, and there's a whole range of like um, issues and uh, massive bibliography that kind of deals with how the healthcare system was already undermined. But let's let's note something else. Um, healthcare, um, the need to support healthcare spending and to increase, massively increase healthcare spending during a pandemic is not only related to the question of COVID, it is related to the fact that we saw this kind of appalling triage taking place in which because um, hospitals were overwhelmed with COVID patients, um, they would have to um, cancel or move, you know, all kind of other treatments that were absolutely necessary for people, right? From cancer to heart to even there were cases in Greece where even like car accidents were not, were not, they were not capable of immediately treating people um, who have had car accidents because they were like only COVID like clinics and stuff like that. So this is like another issue of, of healthcare. It's not just in response to COVID, but it's also that. Last thing, ending up in hospital with COVID is a second step, right? Um, once you get to 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 to, to hospital, um, and of course, you know, healthcare there should be like the best that we can possibly um, imagine. But this is a secondary thing in the sense that this is like what happens once you have the treatment and once you have um, the need for medication in order to treat a disease that is like ongoing. It's equally important in the in the context of a pandemic to have preventive measures, right? And this is this is the the a focus. Um, which is which is occasionally uh, forgotten. Preventive measures include the things that I talked about before in terms of like masks, avoiding crowded uh, indoor spaces and stuff. It also includes vaccines, right? There's just simply no um, um, no reasonable argument today um, when when one looks at the overwhelming evidence of the effectiveness of vaccines in terms of like at least hospitalizations and deaths is just like um, undeniable. So vaccines work in a in a preventive way it avoids the fact that you you know it kind of stops you from going to hospital um right. in such a situation so there is there is something you know absolutely positive and 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 absolutely logical in in the choice of getting vaccinated for this while at the same time of course it is a cheap solution for capital right and right. state they do not have they don't feel the same pressure, or at least that's what they thought for a long, long time, and I think a lot of them still believe that. Um, they didn't feel the same pressure to increase, um, you know, healthcare spending, precisely because they thought they could avoid any kind of long-term investment into something uh, by, you know, a cheaper solution of vaccines. You just, you know, give the vaccines, and then, you know, and, that, and, that, and then it's over. And that was obvious from the way that the, the vaccine campaigns happened all around the world where more or less you were given the impression that once you're vaccinated it's over you can go you're back talking, to yeah. yeah to your normal life you can do whatever <clears throat> you want blah 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 and then from then on the, the only issue is like what do we do with this you know annoying unvac you know unvaccinated people blah 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 i I, th I think at this point it's important to bring forward your thesis or at least to clarify it a bit because as i understand it uh you're not talking about denialism uh, on the left or in society in general as simply a bad idea 
a mistaken idea that people have. You're talking about it as a reflection of the real contradictions in class society. And you're not talking about the response of the state as merely the, the greediness or the, um, the foolishness of the ruling class or elites who are trying to, you know, steal our, our freedoms away from us. But again, seeing the policy respond by, response by various capitalist states as uh, reflective of the contradictory social role that the state plays in a capitalist uh, social mm. system, mm. right? So it's it's very much a materialist analysis. Mm. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, at least th th that's what we try to do. Um, let's say we, we start in a sense, we start by explaining the framework. So we try to explain this in hidden contradictions, right, within capitalist and um, the state. And we explain that, you know, um, what what they're what they're concerned is a kind of like a balance between um keeping the economy open right the the lifeblood of the of the economic um of, of capitalist accumulation has to remain open you know we have to avoid like um you know any obstructions in the supply chains in in distribution in supply and demand blah 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 this is like one aspect of it and then on the other hand you have this like structural obligation to continue the 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 other side of the capitalist accumulation which is the reproduction of labor power right, right. so you cannot have um all workers getting sick um staying at home dying to a certain extent uh, and generally just becoming like unable to work so this was this was like a, one of the schematically speaking one of the key contradictions that that kind of like helped us understand why different forms of management existed. Um, so in a certain way, you can see in the beginning of the pandemic, quite quite a lot of countries and key capitalist countries like the US, um, the UK, um, decided, for example, to um, for this kind of like, no, this is not a big deal. It's just a flu. Um, there's no reason to panic, uh, no, no reason to worry. We're just going to keep things as they were. Um, there's not going to be any lockdown. We're not going to close down anything. And and the key thing is to keep the economy open because, you know, our predictions show that if if this actually kind of goes on and, and there is a proper lockdown of the global economy, you know, GDP is going to go down, um, economic output is going to go down. And, and we're already in a kind of very fragile uh, situation, barely coming out yeah. of the previous crisis. So this is like one side. At the same time, at, at a certain point, it became pretty obvious, um, not only in terms of like scientific facts, but it became obvious in a general sense that this is not a viable option because millions and millions were getting infected. Um, the amount of people who needed hospitalization, the amount of people who were dying, it was just becoming too much, right? So even those um, governments that opted for, for keeping the economy open for very specific reasons um, were forced after a certain point and to a certain extent to, 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 to rethink their policy and start implementing at least some of the measures in many ways completely contradictory, in some ways completely irrational, but they were forced in a certain way to, to look at the situation and acknowledge that this is actually a real um, issue and you can you can you could also feel a little bit like the the kind of pan panic that was setting in, right? Right. Yeah, right. Like, pardon my cynicism, but if it were really just something that affected the elderly and the infirm, mm. I don't think the capitalist state would be that concerned about it, or that generous with the pandemic stimulus. <laughs> exactly. <you know>? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. These are really good points because, um, yeah, all the. 
that part of denialism, which um, which kind of claims and continues to claim two and a half, three years almost after, um, continue to claim that this this is a problem that is reducible to a very small percentage of people, mostly old, mostly kind of like already sick, blah, blah, blah. Um, they have a really hard time explaining why the, the global economy was literally frozen for a few months. Um, this direct, like immediate impact on profitability, on, on distribution and supply chains. It was just absolutely insane what was happening. Um, and, and of course, an unprecedented response in order to keep that afloat, right, in terms of central banks coming in, um, um, governments like abandoning any kind of issues about like increasing public debt and, and massively spending in order to keep people at home. None of that could be explained by, as Jamie said, by, by something that could be as easily dealt as like locking up old people. You know, it's just like, well, obviously. Well, I, I, I beg to differ, though, because now here you get the um, like semi-conspiratorial uh, right populist uh, take, which is also for some reason, at least on Twitter that I see, becoming popular among self-described Marxists, which is that the pandemic lockdown and all the measures, right, were this, um, this plot, this pandemic by the elites or the World Economic Forum or George Soros or Big Pharma who were doing the lockdown in order to gain some sort of nebulous authoritarian control over society. I mean, that's how they square the circle there, which is a sign again of like another, you know, contradiction within society, which is that people, um, that there's a contradiction between the power of the state and the power of like political elites on the one hand and capitalist elites on the other. And the quote unquote left and the quote unquote right are coming up with two different reasons for why this is happening, blaming two different elites, blaming two different structures, when ultimately it's the same thing. And these are reflections of that contradiction. The theory right? that you bring up is something that I hear the most from left and communists people you'd call denialists, uh, people who defend the positions of uh, Giorgio Gambin, who's an Italian autonomous thinker, who I, I really like some of his work. But his writing on the pandemic is just wrong. Like, he came out and called it uh, a flu pretty early on. and But then after that, he was putting out this stuff that's like, this is a plot to get people to stop coming out in public and talking to each other. And they're trying to create this dystopian future where no one's allowed to congregate. And uh, if that's true, I guess Biden has been reading Agamben because, uh, you know, <laughs> we, we opened up in the United States, at least. I don't know what's going on in Italy. I assume Italy's not locked down like Xi'an in China. But um, the goal of these measures was not to c continue these measures indefinitely, but it was to uh, shorten the amount of time that people would be prevented from going to parks and going to movies and dating and stuff like that. Yeah. Did you see, uh, I don't know if they made it into Europe, but it was sort of widely memed that the CDC was giving people bad advice. Uh, the point where I was like, yeah, the CDC said, if you get COVID, you could just listen to the album version of Bella Lugosi's dead and you're good. <laughs> also, they said it's okay to text your ex at 1201 AM on New Year's <laughs> Eve, uh, thinking about you. Wow. Look, the, 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 the crazy thing is that, um, you know, we all know that power in this social system comes from uh, accumulation of capital, right? It comes from property claims over the means of production, uh, not some sort of nebulous state discipline over workers or erection of a biosecurity state. But that, again, from your piece becomes plausible 
when there isn't a sort of like cohesive critique of political economy that kind of grasps the way that the the state itself is is not a neutral arbiter, right? But is instead part of that class power. And, and by the way, the state is already pretty good at disciplining workers. Like, yeah. it didn't <laughs> need an excuse to do mm. it. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in a certain way, um, a lot of these uh, theories that were thrown around that this is... Uh, I mean, first of all, the, the idea that it's a big plot um, would presuppose that there is like a coherent subject um, or, or a group of people that are like, you know, consistently meet and organize and, 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 and decide upon things. And, and that in itself is an image that shows a very fetishized understanding of what is yes. capitalism and what is, what is the state. That, that subject does not exist. There is no coherent plan and there is no one behind it. In any case, I mean, the, the obvious reason for that is to understand that the, 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 the response to the pandemic, the management has taken like different forms in different parts of the world, depending on many different reasons, ideological um, fantasies, the existing um, historical conditions, developments, blah, blah, blah. There are many different reasons why, why these responses were different. Um, so you cannot even claim that there is such a thing as a, as a, as a kind of some kind of mastermind or some kind of entity, whatever that is, which is behind that, because there is no linear plan. There is no um, continuous. There is no even 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 basic agreement on how how to do certain things what there is underneath is similar concerns right and then different forms of responding to them the concerns might be the same and in a certain simplified way we explain them by saying listen there is a concern of continued profitability and at the same time there is a concern of continuing the reproduction of labor power which is absolutely necessary for the profitability if you if you think outside of that context then it kind of makes sense to understand um to understand the situation as if there is this is like a massive attempt at disciplining what is missing from that um description is like disciplining for what Right. For what? Yeah. yeah, discipline does not exist as an end in itself, right? Unless you're like I don't know, 15 year old anarchist, and you think that is the the, the structure of the world. Um, I think everyone is kind of forced to understand that if there is discipline, which of course the state is responsible for disciplining labor power, it has a huge role in organizing, you know, um, um, labor power at a national or international uh, level in order to uh, facilitate accumulation. Of course, that exists, but there is always a in order to do something, right? And right. that is all, always forgotten when, when people are talking about this discipline thing. What is the point of having a disciplined working class if all the factories are closed down? If that working class is right. sick at home? What's, what, yeah. what does it matter if they're disciplined or not? And who actually wins from that? Again, you know, a lot of people are understanding capital as if it's like a conglomeration of like private interests who are like plotting together. And of course, you know, there is the context of like profitability. Every capitalist enterprise entity exists solely in order to produce profit. But there is something else that people forget when they're talking about um, this kind of the, the, the drive towards profitability. Competition, right? There is this tremendous competition within capital. Um, you know, if you do not manage to survive in a certain context, then you will be swallowed up and you will lose any kind of market share you have. That competition right. has played an important role in understanding, you know, which parts of capital are, are pushing for an open economy and which parts were, were happier to, to see a kind of like seizure or, or stoppage of production in order to protect, um, you know, 
um, the, the 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 workforce that was involved. Um, you can see these contradictions like playing out if you have that structure in mind. You also see it if you want in the in the question of vaccines. You know, a lot of people are saying, "Oh my God!" You know, they brought out these vaccines so quickly. Clinical trials were not correct. Blah blah blah. Apart from the fact that all that is nonsense, what a lot of people are not understanding. Are not, are not paying attention to, let's say, is the fact that um, it is not just like Pfizer and Moderna and AstraZeneca companies that are making like crazy profits from the. Of course they are, right? But that in itself doesn't explain why these vaccines are like rolled out. Because yeah. what a lot of people don't know, for example, is that there's another 20 or 30 multinational pharmaceutical um, companies that tried to produce vaccines. You know, they, they made clinical trials and they were just not good enough. And the competition at the moment is so cutthroat that it would be impossible. It was it'd be literally impossible for any capitalist company to ignore the opportunity to destroy its rival by pointing yeah. out at the fact that, you know, your vaccine is actually, you know, your clinical trials do not exist, you know, blah, blah, blah. The only way you can you can you can assume that something like that is happening is if you presuppose that there is no such thing as competition with the capitalism. We live in a completely monopoly capitalism. All these interests are the same, and they're all run by I don't know weird green people in the background who kind of like have the same thing in mind. In, in my without wanting, wanting to be offensive to anyone, in my view, this is a really distorted, fetishized understanding of 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 of, of, of capitalist reality, and it, it makes no yeah. sense, in, especially in the context of the pandemic. Yeah, I, I, I mean, also part of the reason why they were caught on the back foot with the vaccine, as I understand it is because uh, there was not a lot of investment in vaccination research before this because it wasn't very profitable. Absolutely. So yeah. that's one way that the yeah. sort of short-term profits, the short-sightedness yeah. of capital uh, hampered yeah. the pandemic yeah. response. Absolutely. And and that side of the, um, of the if we, we're going to talk a little bit about the vaccine situation, um, it suddenly became, of course, immensely profitable to produce a vaccine that is actually effective. Absolutely. But that same profitability and that same um, kind of like um, legal and, and kind of structural protection of that profitability is the one thing that keeps, um, you know, um, so deprives access to vaccination to the vast majority of the rest of the world, right? And this is like a key issue. Like, you know, in, instead of like sitting around in, in Western developed countries and, and talking about the, I don't know, the, the, the right of someone to, to refuse vaccination because he read a Facebook post or something, we should be like more or less... Um, you know, focusing on the fact that, you know, outside Western capitalist countries um, and developed, let's say, countries, um, less than 6% of the population has received access to vaccines that are actually, you know, absolutely effective um, in, in, in stopping hospitalizations and deaths and, and etc. So that is an issue, again, which is like, you know, the, 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 the drive for profitability and the kind of like, you know, the cruelty that is involved in, in developing those vaccines um, is reflected in that Kind of aspect of of, of 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 the vaccine campaign at a global level, right? The patterns, the the, the lack of infrastructural um, capacity of other countries to produce their own vaccines and all that. This is this is a real issue that is like, um, of course, a lot of people are following it, but but in in the discourse that we've had, you know, in 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 the kind of conflict with denialists, this is something that like barely comes up, you know, because because. If, if you're trying to make a claim that you should not be, you know, required to have a vaccine and your whole kind of like identity or political kind of mobilization is based on the fact that you're refusing, you know, you have the right to refuse a specific, um, of course, you're not going to campaign for the right of others to have that. 
You know, you're not going to campaign for the right of others to have what you are refusing because you think it's not like uh, valid, right? Yeah. So whether whether people, you know, would would think that through or not, the reality is that you know I've never heard um, of any of any denialist in any consistent way, at least, saying that I I don't want to get vaccinated, for example. Um, but I'm absolutely okay if they, you know, the rest of the world is. Well, then people like to hold up this. Uh widespread sort of uh, uh, diffuse denialism that exists not on any po- not in any politically organized sector but just in the population in general as some sort of evidence in their favor which just doesn't it, it it just doesn't consider the objective facts right because people hold all kinds of contradictory ideas and it makes sense because you have all this information coming at you from all different yeah, sources yeah. and nobody knows what the fuck to believe. Everyone's confused. Um, and I think people on the left and the right kind of take that as evidence that, well, this is just a bourgeois liberal concern mm-hmm. or whatever. I, I think uh, the, well, the I response mean, uh, to all that information uh, out there as leftists or communists or intellectuals is that we should try to figure out what's true and say what we believe in. Uh, whereas mm. I, I hear a lot of people saying, well, a lot of working class people or a lot of black people are uh, vaccine hesitant. So maybe they're they're right. I would say ju- just because these people believe it doesn't mean it's right. We should try to look at what what we think is right and express, you know, our perception of reality. Well, th- then this is where this is where um, populism uh, falls down. Right. We, we've been living in a populist era for the last uh, 12 to 15 years or so. And what populism argues is that you have a like small, uh, powerful, self-interested elite at the top. And then you have like, say, a 99% below that people who, who are workers, people who own small businesses, people who are managers in medium-sized businesses, that all of our interests are posed against this elite. And when you, when you, we obviously here on this podcast see the bankruptcy of that, but it seems very plausible when there's not a, like a, a class politics mm. and a class analysis out there for people to try to really understand what's happening. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we shouldn't, um, you know, let, let me clarify something uh, in order to avoid any misunderstanding. When we're talking about when we're talking about denialists uh, in the text, we are not uh, referring to anyone who is skeptical, hesitant, or reluctant to accept. Um, you know, what is happening. We're talking about people who, for whatever reasons that might be, whether it's like some kind of psychological defense mechanism to avoid the burden of like facing a dystopian reality, whether it's some some kind of like different understanding or wrong understanding of data. We're talking about people who politically mobilize on the basis of this. Uh, this is the kind of denialism that we're talking about. We're not talking about anyone. And we I'm sure we, we each one of us knows a lot of people uh, personally in our families or whatever who who would express that kind of like um, you know hesitancy in terms of like you know just just being in line with the, with the generalized delegitimization of like existing kind of like authorities um, you know state um, capitalist interest etc cetera, etc. Cetera. That is something, as you said, this is a, a, a long-standing kind of situation. Yes. This delegitimacy of of existing authorities, and and there is something understandable about that. But um, but we're not talking about the same thing here because this, the fact that someone is 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 reluctant to accept um, a kind of a state narrative, right? 
doesn't in itself make that reluctancy emancipatory. We have we have countless um, historical examples where that kind of like distrust towards what is described as like the powers that be, the elites at the top, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of fetishism um, surrounding such ideas and they have led to actually, you know, really reactionary and appalling social mobilizations, right? Um, of course, there was a level of, there was a level of illegitimacy. There was a level of distrust. Uh, there was even a kind of an understandable, um, complete um, dissatisfaction with existing society as it was, as it was experienced by people. These are all facts, but in themselves, they don't tell us something thing about it because you have to look at the actual content of what these mobilizations are doing what are they actually saying what is the what is the context within which they they express their kind of demands what kind of demands are they and in that kind of analysis you're forced to realize that a lot of this denialism takes place within a realm which is entirely individualistic right that does not understand that an infectious disease is by definition a social relation it is not just concern you it is not something that concerns you in terms of like whether you are at risk or not i see a lot of people right. young people from the 20s 30s even 40s who are saying you know i don't believe that i'm in i'm in danger so i don't understand why i should follow you know um, any kind of restrictions in my everyday life and the question is because you are not alone in this world because what you do in, in the context of an infectious disease, immediately affects anyone else that you come in contact with. So the, the social character of this, of this disease, of this virus, is, 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 is the one thing, again, that is being denied, right? When somebody responds to it from an individual perspective. So there has to yeah. be a more kind of collective understanding. Um, there has to be, you know, there, there has to be a certain, how do you say... <laughs> A disclaimer of the self, right? There has to be a different sense of of of, of understanding and compassion and and, and 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 collectivity. You know, we have to understand that even in its alienated forms, we we still live in a society and we are in contact and, and we depend on our social relations. And and that is what makes this 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 um this crisis different from previous ones, right? Um this is the kind of Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, I mean, okay, so this is this sort of points to something we've been talking about on the show a little bit over time. Yet again, folks, uh, you heard it here first. Like we the live idea in a society. That, okay, there've been some <laughs> labor actions against uh policies that allow bosses to fire people for refusing to get vaccinated. And we've sort of gone back and forth as to whether there's anything recuperable about this but i think sometimes leftists struggle to reconcile this idea on the one hand that the workers as a whole are smarter than the organized left and they know what to do and a, a labor action is always going to be recuperable because it's workers acting together uh, on the one hand with the fact that you know people are also subject to a ton of disinformation and confusion and sometimes they're wrong about stuff and i think that's scary to leftists oh sometimes it's certainly scary to me uh because that means that our role has to be greater in getting people organized and politicized in the right direction 
Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things to 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 say about this, and and I think um, I don't know what the situation is in the U.S. in that respect, but I can tell you that in Europe, um, so the question has become a little bit this this question of like mandatory vaccination. This is something that has not actually been introduced, with some exceptions, um, like Austria introduced mandatory vaccination for everyone starting in March, but the the consequence of not being vaccinated is a fine, right? So it's kind of reduced to that. Um, Greece has introduced mandatory vaccinations for those over 65. And again, this has become like sh- shortly, it's going to, you're going to be fined if you're not, if you're still not vaccinated after a certain amount of time. Um, what most, more countries have done in terms of the question of mandatory vaccinations is introduce it um, for healthcare workers, Right. Now this is this is a kind of a, a another interesting topic where where the kind of confusion and and a certain lack of historical perspective um, is is kind of like jumping out in in, the, in this discussion because at the moment before even COVID like came around right before COVID um, emerged working um, as a healthcare worker presupposed that certain vaccinations had to be complete. Like you could not get a job, and this is like European regulation, right? So it affects the whole of Europe. You cannot get a job as a healthcare worker if you are not, um, you know, in line with the latest kind of understanding, scientific understanding of what it means to protect yourself against infectious disease, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. A similar kind of say, mandatory vaccination exists for sending children to the kindergarten and to school, right? None of these issues, with the exception of a very fringe lunatic kind of new agey anti-vax movement none of these don't issues get libertarians yeah we don't have those in europe <laughs> they're really lucky they're, 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 yeah it's not it's not the same phenomena as in the u.s um no but i'm saying uh, people who today come out and speak like so you know violently and 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 angrily against mandatory vaccinations um are usually kind of quiet about uh, those other situations where mandatory vaccinations already existed. And from a certain perspective, speaking um, from, from a kind of historical perspective, these kind of like regulations for healthcare workers, let's say, were in fact demanded by working class movements in the past. They had to do with protective measures at, in workplaces. They had to do with making sure that the cost of, um, you know, protecting yourself is not something that falls individually on the workers, but it's something that is that, that is like provided from on, on top. So on the one hand, you have this kind of context of, of working class demands uh, for, for, for better working conditions. At the same time, it is absolutely reasonable to expect that when, you know, people ha- treat like vulnerable patients, um, sick people, uh, people with, with, with long-term illnesses, et cetera, et cetera, they're not supposed to have infectious diseases, right? It, it's just like, um, you know, it's kind of weird that we, we, we have ended up in a situation where we have to discuss whether that is a possibility or not, whether we have to discuss whether someone um, who works in the healthcare sector um, can individually and according to whatever sources they find, uh, decide whether they're going to take um, protective measures against infectious disease or not, right? This yeah. is something that, yeah. you know, d- d- kind of undermines the whole idea of public health in itself, right? right? It could not be the case that it is like that. You cannot allow, um, you know, so in that sense, these mandatory vaccinations existed. Um, they're already part of it. What people are actually reacting to now is the specific vaccines, is a specific mandate, the specific context of COVID. 
And in that sense, they fall again under this category that we, we used of denialism. Um, because this is it, it's a specific denial of that specific context. It is not, and in most cases, I mean, you have some cases where people go off in that direction, but in most cases, it is not an argument against vaccinations per se. It is not a, an argument against, you know, having protective measures for healthcare workers in hospitals. It is not an argument against letting, you know, viruses like, I don't know, or measles or whatever roam free through like uh, children. Nobody would ever defend that, obviously, right? But it's this context of COVID that has created this illusion that for some reason, if you force healthcare workers, this is the end, right? Or this is so the beginning about, of the uh, end. Once you do accept when you that. Move on past healthcare workers, like I've heard that in France, you have to get this QR code to like take a bus. But then if you're an immigrant, you can't get the QR code, even if you're vaccinated. So I've heard that there's like a range of difficulties that come along with green passes or uh, vaccine passports that really are um, a step too far or don't make any sense. And there's reason to protest against them, even if you believe in everyone being vaccinated. Right. Um, let me put it this way. Um, there are issues related to the green pass or to the this kind of application. Um, it's not exactly as you describe. It's not that you're not allowed to go in the bus, but it's like in certain cases and depending on the kind of like whether there are measures taking place or not, um, it's up in some countries in order to enter like um, a public crowded space, you know, a bar, a cafe, a restaurant, a theater, you have to show uh, a certificate that you're vaccinated. This is what we're talking about. It's not a... People call it pass, green pass, blah, blah, blah. It's basically a certificate of vaccination, right? And that is that has become um, um, kind of necessary in order to do certain things. And, and people are reacting against that. Yeah, I get a little, I get a little bit frustrated sometimes uh, at people's focus on, okay, because it's the state doing it, because it's a capitalist state doing it, um, this means that public health measures are anti-lockdown or or you know, locking down masks, vaccinations, et cetera, that these things are necessarily oppressive and bad because given the world that we currently operate in, the ones doing the public health measures are going to be either the state or the private sector, which is even less subject to democratic control. So uh, I don't like it either. Um, but if you don't like that the capitalist state is the one doing the public health measures, let's fucking overthrow it and make a better system of governance. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, um, l- l- let me put it this way. I mean, one can can find um, quite a few issues in which, you know, rejecting this kind of like uh, passport or this kind of like certificate or rejecting the, 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 the necessity, the compulsion to show it to 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 access you know X Y Z in you know th- there are issues that are involved in that and these issues existed before we already have um, you know ID cards we already required to to okay depending on the country but in most cases you're ready to require to have some kind of documentation that shows who you are and um, there is a way in which this specific um, kind of like uh, invention um, is kind of is receiving much more heat than than one would have expected in the sense that you know we have already kind of like um, such things happening and 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 people have not reacted to them as if it's like you know the beginning of a fascist dictatorship. 
people you know often point to the to the question of like technological development in, in terms of applications in terms of surveillance in terms of data um in terms of data collection in terms of the, the potential that these technological developments give when for example showing such a certificate in order to access things becomes regularized and normalized and and legitimized um there are some of these issues and 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 i don't think we should be like completely ignoring them i would agree but I would make a, a distinction in, in what sense. The, the one issue um, with this is that I find it a little bit hard to, to kind of like um, balance this kind of like rejection of like technological advances of surveillance and data collecting and da-da-da-da-da when it comes from mobilizations that are overwhelmingly um, organized and network and 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 become collectively kind of like bigger through social media through the user platforms that already make use of data you know when we have this footnote on the text and i think it's kind of indicative it's kind of like very hypocritical in a certain way for people who have who have like um verified accounts on social media with their names and their photographs to, to complain about the fact that you know um this is like surveillance they're, they're trying to steal my data and stuff like that it doesn't yeah, make no a lot shit. of sense right it's it's, it's kind of the that same, ship is sailed honey yeah it's kind of like contradictory when people willingly have given their data for like ever um to private private sector companies as well um, to, to suddenly become. But then again, it's never too late. So, you know, people might, might just like, you know, have decided that this has gone too far and, and stuff like that. Um, a lot of these arguments in, in a certain way, I would say, are based on, 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 on always pointing at some speculative potential, right? It's like, if, you, if they do this now, imagine what's next. Or if they do this now, it is forever established and it's never going away. I have to, to, to admit, I'm, I'm a bit skeptical of those things. Like at the moment, you know, there is this situation with the pandemic, there is this airborne virus, and there is a vaccine that is proven to be effective. And to enter certain places in which contagion is very possible, you have to show that you have, you know, taken measures to protect yourself and others from, um, you know, that virus. I cannot imagine any kind of context or framework or any situation that would justify having such a kind of like a necessary documentation in order to enter any place once COVID is gone, wow. assuming that COVID will be gone. Like, I cannot imagine every, any other context in which they would say, oh, you know, but now that we have this, we're going to continue it. So from Unless, now on, in order to enter like a... Yeah, why would they spend money on that if they didn't have yeah, to? Yeah, I was going to say, unless you take the conspiracist view again of like globalist elites, you know, I think a lot of these questions over policy, I mean, all of them actually, they, none of them happen in a vacuum. When you're talking about it in the United States, uh, there's a very particular context of it, which is that for the last 30 or 40 years, you've had um, small business owners racked by, you know, competition from big capital. You've had centralization. You've had um, the life chances uh, and the wages of the working class uh, stagnate or decline. And one of the ways that that loss of, um, loss of a future has been made up for uh, in the United States is by turning back to uh, the American as the consumer of last resort for the world economy. So our, the conception of freedom in like a declining empire that we've been given ideologically, and it's, it's true to a certain extent, is the freedom to do whatever you want. 
is the freedom to have a castle, you know, to have a house that nobody can come and touch you, nobody can affect you, to consume, uh, you know, whatever it is that you can afford, uh, to exploit other people if you're a small business owner without the interference of uh, and regulation from governments. And this, I think, in a unique American way, is part of the huge uh, pushback against any policies that would interrupt what is what is considered like the true American freedom to consume uh, and to do whatever the fuck you want with nobody telling you what to do. This is what's scary for not just, you know, for, for tons of people in the United States. Some people decide that that's, that's, they're willing to live with that, you know, because this is a social crisis. Other people have turned it into a political slash culture war because it's got this sort of like negative critique to it that's very powerful in an era when the state is delegitimized, when the state is fucking this whole thing up uh, and, and in general. So I, that's the U.S., I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, in a sense, you're right, because that that kind of sense of individualism, I mean, this idea that um, we are self-regulating, autonomous, you know, independent kind of units, right? Um, it, it's not just an American thing, obviously, right? This is this is part and parcel of the development of the historical development of a capitalist society. And it has to do with the kind of like, you know, it, it has its own form of denialism inside because it denies at the same time the abstract social character of, of capital, right? The, the way through which, you know, uh, our, our activity in this world becomes socialized through the capitalist form of production, but it also denies the kind of social character of our being as opponents of this world, right? Right. Um, so it's kind of it has this kind of form of denialism inside, and and it's kind of like um, problematic. So because it, it kind of at at its essence, it kind of like um, undermines the idea of, of 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 collective being, right? Whether in alienated or non alienated forms, right? But a kind of presupposition for 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 doing any kind of like um, mobilization that could effectively, you know, um, undermine the capitalist um, relation and could like point in 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 directions of of, of freer emancipatory lives, um, you know, the collective is kind of a definition. A, a presupposition, yeah. let's say, um, but at the same time, let, let, let's let's add another element because there is there is um, there is a personal element in all of that, right? Because it affects us directly as individuals, as bodies, as you know, um, as people in relation to others, but also um, in a, there is an understandable um, kind of like fear in all this, right? And it's like um, there is fear in in all sides, even. You know those who 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 follow and do not deny the existence of or, or the uncertainty or the threat of the pandemic, and there's fear to those who deny it as well. Both these things are fear, and there is something there is something very um, problematic about assuming that fear is something that can that can be controlled and can be tamed and 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 rationalized. Right? This is yeah. this is the opposite of the definition of fear. So we have to be kind of understanding of that without at the same time justifying it in the sense that, you know, we have to find ways of overcoming that fear. And unless we, we collectively somehow, you know, l take a look around, understand the situation we're in, understand the contradictions that we face, and we try to take advantage of those contradictions in order to gain, you know, something for ourselves, that fear is not going to go away. In fact, the more individually you, you respond to such a social crisis, the more fear you will feel, right? Because, yeah. because you're completely powerless against the situation. 
And there yeah. is, um, you know, and it's not it's not coincidental that this kind of sense of powerlessness, this sense of like losing control, of having no kind of direct control against like a virus that's global, against uh, governments that are imposing specific measures, against capital forcing you to work whether you're sick or not, blah, blah, blah. This is kind of complete lack of, lack of control that people have felt forever and, and even stronger in, in later years when you have like, you know, you don't have big social movements fighting against that. Um, so that loss of control gets compensated in, in this form of denialism that we criticize by, by pointing at two things in which you actually feel that you have you regained control. One of them is wearing a mask or not, mm. and the other one's refusing the vaccine or not. Yeah. So these are two things that you can actually, people feel the, the, the capacity of actually saying no to. Yes. Whereas the rest of what is happening is just like, it's just overwhelming, right? So yeah. th this kind of like denialism has, you know, has kind of understandable in a certain way um, origins because it does, you know, give the impression and this is where the critique starts, because it's only an impression that you can actually regain some control over what is happening. Um, in, in a certain way, the, the opposite is true. Um, what, we, what we try to, to, to express in the text is that um, it is only by, by taking collective measures of protection that we can actually find ourselves um, having more leverage and more power. Um, the, the pandemic has opened up certain paths that were, um, there were some of them because of pressure, some of them um, because it was like, um, you know, they, they were forced to respond this way. But it has opened up certain paths that were, that were possibly unheard, uh, unthinkable uh, a while ago. So, for example, um, there is the obvious case, and this has happened quite a lot in, in various parts in Europe, and I'm, I'm pretty sure without knowing that this has also happened in the U.S., um, healthcare workers did find themselves in a very strong position to demand certain things. Um, and in, in many cases, they did succeed in, 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 in winning quite a lot in the situation of, of the COVID pandemic. Quite often they did not. The situation, of course, is still ongoing and, and there is a lot to be said and done. But at the same time, you could see in certain moments, in certain countries, in certain contexts, that the, 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 the power that, there, that was like suddenly um, handed down to, not handed down, but like that emerged, you know, from the perspective of healthcare workers was quite immense. That was a, that was a point that, that, that could have been taken more advantage. You know, more things could have been demanded. So, okay. Uh, towards the end of this piece, you guys hit on the basic fact that yes, uh, capital and the state, they want to keep workers alive so they can continue generating profits for capitalists. Um, but that's a thing that we can hopefully use to our advantage because we all need to stay alive and healthy if we want to fight and win. Also, you know, most of us like being alive. Uh, that's pretty good. Um, this is a, uh, this is a, I think this is a very sane corrective to some of the more galaxy brain takes I've heard from communizers, like making yourself a grilled cheese sandwich is an unacceptable kind of work because it's in service of capital. People shouldn't have kids because you're just, you know, feeding them into the meat grinder of accumulation, yada, yada. Um, how do we, how do we turn this essential desire of the state to keep workers alive in our favor? How do we take advantage of this crisis? Are there any openings we can use? And what would a good leftist sort of pro-science, anti-death, but also anti-state movement look like? Well, I mean, um, 
as, as I said in the beginning, I would say the starting point is to refuse the tendency to accept this capitalist logic of depoliticizing death, illness, and, and making it like an acceptable statistics. We have, we have to start there. Um, and in order to do that, you know, we need to accept that um, certain self-protective measures are absolutely necessary. Now, in the context of, of, of mobilizations that have emerged, um, I, would, I, would, I would try to differentiate between those that I consider to be um, positive and, 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 and adding a potential that is, um, that is um, quite clear to see and those that are kind of like um, obscure, um, problematic in many ways, ending up in, in very often in very reactionary kind of directions. And um, I would say, you know, for, for those who, 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 who have a tendency to kind of look at these mobilizations against the measures, against um, vaccinations, against uh, mandatory vaccinations, you know, there's a mixed match of, of topics and people kind of selectively choose the ones that they're, they're, they feel closer to. Although in reality, you know, most, most um, sophisticated um, analysis and, and research on, this, on these mobilizations show that there is, a, there is a, a very strong hegemonic reactionary kind of position being, being supported because the same people who are anti-vax, um, they're against masks, they're against social distancing, they're against any kind of measure, um, which again brings them into this category of denialism, you know, because I, 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 it's kind of in an anecdotal way, every time I speak with people who are in this pro process of denialism, I always ask the question, okay, let's say you do not accept vaccines, what kind of measures would you accept, right? What kind of measures do you think are reasonable in the situation we are in? And it has rarely been the case that any of them are actually supporting any kind of measures. And it's kind of a, a test limit for me in a way to, to understand where somebody stands on this situation, whether, you know, there is some kind of a, kind of understandable hesitancy or whether we are walking into the territory of denialism. Because, you know, regardless of the, the kind of critique you can have against irrational measures and the repressive measures of the state, um, it is it is equally important to maintain a sense of logic in terms of like there is an airborne virus out there and it does affect people's lives in devastating ways. So we need to to kind of figure out what these things are. And in most of these movements that have happened in like in Germany for sure, um, in Italy and France, um, there is a kind of reluctance to look at the actual content of what they're saying. So people are focusing a lot on the fact that they are, you know, um, reacting to some kind of repressive measure. Although in many cases, you know, um, kind of interesting to note, these repression measures are not actually taking place. Like in Germany, you haven't had a really, um, a really harsh lockdown in any sense whatsoever, but you have like loads of uh, people demonstrating against them. Um, and 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 so on. But even in the case where where you had like um, completely irrational, repressive, stupid measures, like you had in Greece, quite a lot. Um, quite often, the the movements that rose in in, in response to this um, repression, as it was in Greece in last March, um, are quite separate from the ones that are mobilizing against vaccinations, um, against lockdowns in general. Not that the, the, we, we support any kind of lockdown, you know, it's still a state policy that makes little sense in terms of a pandemic, but in the sense that, you know, these people are, are demonstrating against all of these kind of reasonable and unreasonable measures at the same time. Um, there is this, this discussion about, um, you know, as we said before, the green pass, um, the kind of like anti-vax, the content of that is rarely looked upon, right? So in, in a certain way, for example, um, what we try to, to, to kind of show in the text as well is like 
nobody really asks, why don't people get vaccinated? What is the reason behind that? You know, in order to support a movement, in order to understand, let's say, the, the actual content of a movement in its demands and its discourse, you have to you have to look at what they're saying, right? So, what what are the reasons that being that, that are being presented um, as justifying that kind of mobilization? This then it becomes very muddy, right? Um, as soon as you start scratching the surface of that, um, you kind of like you kind of suddenly faced with a situation that makes little rational sense, you know, from conspiracy theories all the way to kind of very fetishized um, kind of like problematic understandings of what capital means, uh, big pharma, you know, big data, blah, blah, blah. There's a, there's a lot of uh, wide range of theories. And, and, and that seems to be the, the, the kind of like, the, if, if there is a common element in all these mobilizations, it, it, it starts necessarily by this denial, Right. And um, people translate that denial and justify that denial in different ways politically, depending on where they were politically before uh, the pandemic or before the mobilization. So if you were left, you will find some kind of lefty, sophisticated way of, you know, of, of, of justifying your rejection in terms of like, you know, I'm against big capital. I'm against like the state. Da, da, da. If you were right wing, you will find some kind of other weird conspiracy theory. Anti-Semitism, you know, maybe. Yeah. Anti-Semitism, um, anti-Soros, anti—I don't know, whatever you know—the list. Bill is Gates, yeah. Bill they Gates. They hate the state for different reasons. Let's just say. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, the, the, you know, but 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 the, for me, it's kind of important to 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 point that out. The 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 political justification that comes afterwards is not the key point. Um, I would say the key point to understand the content of these movements is to find, you know, what is the trigger. What is it? What is the thing behind it? And this is one of the reasons why, for example, when I see comparisons between the the current mobilizations against um, measures, uh, masks, um, um, vax, blah blah blah, um, one of one of the key things that um, one of the common things that you find there um, in in all these mobilizations is precisely yeah this, this denial behind it. You know, this idea that this is not an actual kind of crisis. This is like a made-up thing. Uh, it's just a flu. You're not really under threat. You know, there's no reason for us to accept any kind of restrictions because it, at the end of the day, we do not think that this is as much a threat as they say it is, right? So the content is kind of like baked in that kind of framework. And then, you know, people um, define it differently and, and politically um, translate it differently. Without without looking at the at the thing, so when they when they compare, for example, the mobilizations with the Zilets Jaunes, let's say um, the, the the yellow vests in France, or whether I've seen even people compare it to to the uprisings in Tahrir Square, um, to the Gezi Park uprising in Turkey, there, there is something missing, very fundamentally missing in that comparison, because in all those previous cases, you have a direct social content uh, that was the trigger of that kind of um, you know. Um, social struggle. For example, if we take the yellow vests, you know, there was a there was a specific tax that was being imposed. That meant that people that depended on like using petrol for the movement because they, they exist in the hinterland of like, you know, contemporary urban landscapes, um, they they saw that as a direct threat to their livelihoods and as a direct means of their further proletarianization, right? And that was a trigger. And then once these people got to the street and mobilized, then the kind of discussions and conflicts and debates over ideas of how to deal with this, um, how to understand it, started happening. That social content, that trigger, is not really present in those current mobilizations, right? Um, at least not in the sense way. In fact, I would say there is no social content. They start from a certain political idea. 
You know, they start from a, a certain, if not a kind of psychological denial to, to reduce that to the individual level and to somehow pathologize it, which I'm not trying to do. Um, but there is a political kind of understanding that is presupposed in order to go that, down there in the streets. It is not like a social content. And for me, that makes a very important difference because the social content, for example, in opposition, you can see it in those health workers who demanded, went on strike, you know, and did... Um, walkouts in order to ensure that they have like protective measures in order to ensure that they have like uh, all the necessary protection that is needed in order to ensure that they have time off these people have been working for the last two and a half years almost non-stop without any yeah. any sick pay without any leave they've been absolutely devastated so when those workers were, were, were out in the streets demanding better conditions in order to you know deal with that pandemic there was a clear social content there um you can take it even further. The reactions, the, the, the reactions to, to the management of the pandemic, um, had these forms of like, uh, as we, we mentioned before, giving money for people to stay at home, right? Um, states pub like massively increasing their public debt. Central banks just like flooding liquidity and and doing directly monetary financing of, of state expenses in order to ensure, you know, that the, um, there was, there was um, that people would survive to a certain extent, right? Let's reduce it to that. That had as a result, right, this is the interesting thing that has happened and it really evades the attention of denialism. It has as a result in places like the United States, maybe for the first time in decades, and now it's the, the situation is similar in Germany, you have the, the fact that working class people have for the first time the opportunity to refuse to take a shitty precarious job. Right. You have a kind of transformation in the labor market that has suddenly given a certain power to working class people, which they didn't even like, you know, go to the streets to demand. Right. But it was kind of like given out of necessity in order to maintain a situation. You have a certain kind of power developing that is almost unprecedented. And again, here is a here is a, is, a, is a path through which you can say, well, hang on. Now we have the opportunity to to disentangle wage labor from productivity, to disentangle our kind of destructive everyday wage labor from the fact that we can survive, and that actually works. That creates a kind of a context in which you know many doors are opened up, right? In in, in looking at the future, guys, this is a really good place to. Um close down this excellent main episode uh, with Pavlos uh, and the three of us and to open up a potentially even spicier um, bonus behind the paywall. So why don't we go ahead and uh, we'll continue this discussion. And if you're not a patron, uh, you can sign up at patreon.com slash the Antifada for this bonus content and so much more. Pavlos, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Always a pleasure. I'ma burn a bridge, feel like a pyro I'ma say my prayers, I'll be hellbound tomorrow I'm in my sorrow, I see my cold on Does someone have a heart that I could borrow? Tearing me apart Does someone have a heart that I could borrow? Crazy how I feel, right? I wonder if this real. 